Let's open the Word of God together to the epistle of James. James chapter number 2. I'll be reading in just a moment verses 1 through 4. Here we begin the second chapter, a very critical chapter. And James is going to show us again how true faith in Christ transforms us into the people of God that we should be. In this passage that I'm about to read to you, James will address a danger and a potential sin that might otherwise bring dishonor to the name of Christ. So we want to read these words very carefully and listen to the way they might apply to our church. The word of the Lord, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now may the Lord bless his people under the proclamation of his holy word. We come to chapter 2, verse 1, and we have a family problem. There's a problem in the family. Notice the way James begins the chapter with those tender words of address, my brothers, my brothers. He is talking to the family. He is talking to the family of God. And we see as we study the New Testament that the highest Christian title by which we can be known by is the title brother. And James is addressing the brothers, all those who are in the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, all those who have the privilege of of crying out in prayer, Abba, Father, every Christian, every brother and sister in Christ. They are blood kin. And so he addresses them as brothers in the Lord. But there's the potential for a disruption in the family within the church. Now, before we go any further, I am strangely comforted by this. We often think of the good old days when the church had no trouble, right? We think of the first century church as those closest to Jesus, chronologically. Those with the apostles as pastors, or maybe a a brother of Jesus as the pastor, as in the case of the churches James is writing to. And we think that they were trouble-free, and if we could only get back to the good old days. Well, there, there were no good old days. Every church has its trouble. There has never been a church without problems. There's never been a church with a perfect fellowship. The church is messy, and the churches to whom James is writing are also messy. They are composed of sinners and Redeemed sinners, and even redeemed sinners do what sinners do sometimes. They, they sin, and they are just like us. So James, addressing the brotherhood, raises the issue that might potentially be at play in any church family, and it has to do with their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 1, the problem has to do with their faith in Christ, not with the body of belief. He isn't here talking about the the body of belief, those Christian doctrines that you must hold to to be a Christian, but he's talking about 
their personal and subjective faith in Christ, how they flesh out their faith in Christ, how they live their faith in Christ. He's concerned about the day-to-day life in the body. There's something that could go wrong in the family. Now, what is it? What is it that could go wrong? Well, notice the word partiality. The sin that James is concerned about, the family issue, that messy thing that might manifest itself is the sin of showing partiality or favoritism toward those who might visit with them in worship. Now, we can read some of the other translations of this passage and get a a fuller sense of what James is talking about. The NIV reads this way, James is cautioning them about, about showing favoritism, that's the word, showing favoritism. Uh, The King James renders it showing respect of persons. I like the Phillips translation. He says, the problem is snobbery. That's the problem that could develop in the church. The word partiality, as it appears in the English Standard Translation, means to regard with favor, to show favoritism, to be unduly influenced by someone's status or their prestige or their power or their influence or their wealth. One has described this as a snobbish respect, a prejudiced favoritism. It's not uncommon in the New Testament. In fact, the idea appears even in Matthew 22. The disciples of the Pharisees once described Jesus this way. They said, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anybody's opinion and you are not swayed by appearances. That's the word. Jesus, not impressed by appearances. Paul says in Romans 2.11 that our God shows no partiality. And so that's the idea. And James is concerned that that spirit of partiality and favoritism has found a home within the people of God. They are treating people, they might be tempted to treat people according to their outward appearance. And that's a problem. Well, to make it even clearer, James gives an illustration. It's always helpful when the biblical author provides his own illustration. And here's an example where we have an illustration that's inspired. And the illustration, the hypothetical situation, has to do with the church at worship. Notice verse 2. It's as they meet. It's in the assembly. They're meeting together on the Lord's Day for worship. And lo and behold, they have two visitors come in simultaneously. Everyone's seated, everyone's ready for worship, and two men come in at the same time, a rich man and a poor man. The first visitor is described as the rich man. Now, he is evidently wealthy because you can simply look at him and see the evidence that he's well-to-do. It, it's, it's written all over him. Notice he, he wears a gold ring and he's adorned with fine clothing, the unmistake, unmistakable marks of luxury and ostentation. Literally, James writes, he is gold-fingered. One commentator says, this man has a gem on every joint, a nugget on every knuckle. 
And that was exactly what the wealthy did with their rings. They wore a ring on every finger, multiple rings on every finger. Sometimes they would even rent rings to wear. The more rings you wore, the more wealth you gave off. And this man has rings everywhere. And not only the gold rings, but notice his fine clothing. Literally, his clothing is shining. That's the word. It is, it is radiant white. His toga is radiant white. Maybe there are silver threads glistening in the light of the worship center. He didn't buy this off the rack at Walmart, in other words. This was Taylor May, the greatest tailor, the greatest materials, the most skilled of craftsmen made this toga he wears. And so he's clearly a man who's well-to-do. And every eye turns and mouths fall open. But then there's another man. And he comes in and James describes this man as in shabby clothing. He is poverty-stricken. He may be a lowly beggar. His clothing is shabby. That is, it is filthy and dirty. It is not stunning white. And both of them come into the place of worship together. And the question we're all waiting for is what, is, what is going to happen? How will that be answered? What is going to happen? These men come in, and what will the church do? How will they react? Here is a test of faith. The church is about to be tested by God. We're going to find out what kind of church this really is now. Here is the test. Well, in this hypothetical scene, we know what happens next. <coughs> Verse 3. The congregation pays attention to the one who wears the fine clothing. This well-appointed man, from his perspective, he gets exactly what he wants. He comes in, and the effect is had. He has their attention. He's used to that. He has their attention. Every eye notices him. That's the idea in this phrase, pay attention to. They looked with favor upon him. They paid deference to him. His lofty status has been positively acknowledged. Every, every eye is glued to him. And you can perhaps even make out those quiet sighs of awe. Wow. The message this man is giving off is, if I don't get that, I'll just go down the road to the next church where I know I'll get that. He has them right where he wants them. He has become the center of attention. The scene gets a little bit more disturbing, doesn't it, as we read on. Then they begin to talk to this man. And what do they say to him? Well, you can imagine this, can't you? Maybe they had ushers or deacons. And all of a sudden, he is surrounded by church leadership. And they say, oh, oh, we're going to take you to the best seat in the house. The best seat. We're going to put you down where the action is, where the dignitaries would sit. We're going to make you feel special. You wonder if anybody in the congregation 
would have thought of something that Jesus said. Because Jesus addressed this. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gave a warning to the church. Apparently, the people to whom James wrote were not thinking about this. Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues. And here is a man who's come in quietly in an unspoken manner demanding the best seat in the house and the church bowing down to his unspoken wishes. They played right into his hand. On the other side of the coin, there's the poor man. And now they speak to him. And what do the deacons, what do the ushers, what do the congregants say to this poor man? Notice these words, you stand over there, all right? Or better yet, sit on the floor. One translation reads, sit at my footstool. One man gets praise, one man gets adulation, one man gets special treatment. The other man gets cold instructions about staying in his place. They are fawning and fighting over the rich man, and they barely acknowledge the existence of the destitute man. And this is in church. This isn't at the football stadium. This isn't at the movie or the mall. This is in the congregation of the redeemed. That's what's incredible about it. Such snobbery. An unholy elevation of rank and wealth. Such a worldly focus on the externals. Those things that are valued and treasured out in the world, not by God's people. James is describing the fact that an evil and alien mindset has somehow found a home within the church. The church is looking like the world. The world has evangelized the church. You see, the worldly mind is fixated on external appearances. The worldly mind loves to divide people up into categories, ranking them by class and ethnicity, race, status, categories such as that. The worldly mindset is always impressed with glittering gold and fine clothing and sensuous bodies and expensive cars and homes and all the toys that those things can buy. The world loves the beautiful people, the glamorous, the famous, the, the wealthy who always seem to get their way. They never have to wait in line. They get the best of everything. That's the way it is. Those are the rules established in the world. That's just the rules we play by. That's the way the world has always lived, with partiality and favoritism, all in the world's rebellion against God. And James is talking to the family, and he is saying that sinful way of thinking is now at home in the hearts of God's people. Well, in verse 4, the spiritual diagnosis that James is giving continues to expand. And he speaks of what's going on 
when the church behaves that way. Look at the rhetorical question he raises in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Now that's a very difficult word to translate, the word distinctions. It's one of those New Testament words that troubles sometimes our New Testament experts. But the best we can do with that word is to see that it really means something like this wavering or vacillating between opinions, to be inconsistent. He, he's saying it's the sin of being inconsistent. When, when you fawn over someone who's wealthy and powerful and you make a big deal out of them and you ignore everybody else, you, you are wavering between positions. You're being thoroughly inconsistent. That's the idea. He would say you're being double-minded. You go back to chapter 1, verse 8. This is what double-mindedness is. The church is being double-minded. The church is trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. The church is trying to pr profess faith in Christ while living by the standards of the world. And here, the church is guilty of an evil act of discrimination guided by faulty standards. The church is trying to do what Jesus said is impossible to do, to serve both God and mammon. And so here, James is writing to churches that are guilty of attaching undue weight to a man's social status while singing praises to Jesus. It's a sad scene. A church with upside-down values. A church that has devalued Jesus and exalted earthly things. And he finishes it off by saying, what you've done with this culpable inconsistency, what you've done is you have become judges, evil judges. You have set yourself up as a board of adjudicators, self-appointed judges determining who is valuable. Do you see that? Boy, there it is. You have become evil judges. You have put it upon yourself to determine who is valuable. That's evil, he says. Evil to the core. And here it's perfectly applicable to quote the most misquoted verse in all the Bible. It is perfectly, perfectly acceptable here. It fits. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And this is what he was talking about. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is what Jesus was talking about. Making evil discriminations between people based upon external things. Ranking them according to some selfish agenda and thereby becoming hostile to the mindset of a Christian. No church, no Christian should ever behave that way. Pretty serious stuff, isn't it? But relevant stuff. 
What James is describing happens every week in churches all across this country and this world. Every week, someone is respected and given preferential treatment simply because of what they have or who they are. And James is going to teach us that to do that is to deny the gospel. It is a big deal. And that's why he speaks to us today with such boldness, such clarity. It's a family talk. And we need to fix it. Let's back up for a moment and let's think about what's really going on here and speak of it in contemporary terms. What's really happening in this illustration that James is giving? What led to this? How does a church, I mean, you got James as your pastor. How does a church get in that shape? Well, the answer becomes clear in verse 1. Look back to the way the chapter is commenced. You might have missed it the first time through. James calls attention to, listen to this, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now the clue to what went wrong and what can fix it is right there in that exalted title for Jesus, the Lord of glory. What a, what a most significant name for Jesus, the Lord of glory. What in the world does that mean? Well, you know that the concept of glory is a major Old Testament theme. The God of the Bible is most glorious and holy. His glory is indescribable. The brightness of our Lord's glory makes the sun pale in comparison. It sets him apart from all other created things. He is exalted and transcendent because he is most glorious. And we see his glory revealed in strategic places throughout the history of redemption. Think for a moment about Exodus 16. The Lord had led his people out of Egypt. They were out there in the wilderness. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them in the cloud and in the fire. And the Lord was with his people gloriously so, leading them, protecting them in the wilderness. There's the glory of Yahweh. Think of the time when Israel moves through the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai, and at the summit of Sinai is the glory of the Lord. Unspeakably bright. You cannot imagine the brightness of it. And there the Lord's glory appears to his people. He is with them. They build the tabernacle along the way, that portable temple made of poles and fabric and they they carry this portable temple with them on their way to the promised land and in that portable temple in exodus 40 the glory of the lord appears there in that place god's glory they finally build the temple in jerusalem the permanent temple and there is a day that when the lord's glory comes to be at home in that temple and first kings 8 says that the lord's glory came with such magnitude and such power that the priest could not stand there to minister I mean, even the priest could not stand in the presence of God's glory. Oh, he's glorious. 
But there's more. Because the Old Testament teaches that that temple is only a type and a shadow of a greater opportunity for the expression of God's glory. A greater temple will come. And what happens? Well, the psalmist gives us a hint. David, Psalm 30, rather Psalm 3, 3, but listen to this, you, but you, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory. You are my glory. His glory is not a force. His glory is not a substance. He is glorious. Think about David in Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? Who is the king? A prophecy that there will be one who is the king of glory. Who is the king of glory? Answer, the Lord, strong and mighty. David is thinking about a coming glory. And then the prophet Isaiah sounds the prophetic note about another temple, another example of God being glorious. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. God will bring his glory to his people in a greater way, says the prophet. Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken this promise. There would be a day when there would be greater glory. When was that day? What did David look forward to? What did the prophets look forward to? They looked forward to what John said in the opening lines of his gospel. The word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Are you, are you getting the picture? We have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then that glorious one, Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, begins to, begins to minister publicly. He goes to Cana and listen to what happened at the first public miracle we have record of. Jesus turns water into wine. 120 gallons of water he turns into wine. And John says, this is the first sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory. You see, our Lord Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God. The author of the Hebrew epistle says, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the Lord who is glorious. Yahweh's glory embodied come down to earth. And when He died, the Apostle Paul said of that event, The Lord of glory was crucified. And James uses that same title, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory was crucified. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to the Father. Now he is with us. The Lord of glory is with us. Now are you, are you understanding the fundamental sin that James has uncovered here? There's something, there's something underneath their partiality. There's something underneath their favoritism. What is it? They have missed Jesus. Instead of at worship looking at 
and being conscious of the incomparable glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are looking at gold rings and fine clothing. They've missed Jesus. They, they came to worship on Sunday and they didn't see Jesus. They just saw people. They came to church to look at people. They are people watching. What does sister so-and-so have on? What does brother so-and-so? Oh, is that a new dress? Oh, those are new shoes. Where did he get that ring? I bet that cost a ton. Did you see the car he was driving? I bet they have a lot of debt. I bet they're not really happy in that big house. Did you hear they have 12 television sets in their house? Hey, his kid drives a Beamer. They've come to church and they're looking at people. And what is tragic is standing in their midst is the Lord of glory. All week I've, I've thought about a, an illustration I've used many times. It, it, it works here. The disappointment on the face of many parents on Christmas morning. Only the Lord knows how many hours you've spent putting together that complex toy. About as complex as the space shuttle. And you put it together. And then at midnight you go buy the batteries for the thing that you forgot. And there it is. And your child comes down the stairs and sees that toy, opens the box, takes the toy, throws it aside, and spends the morning playing with the box. And that's what they've done to Jesus. They've come to church, discarded Jesus, and elevated men. And that's the common temptation. They're blind to what worship is. They're setting a value on the wrong things. They've allowed their worship to become worldly and man-centered, even narcissistic. And that's the height of hypocrisy. And now what James feared, what he expressed in chapter 1, verse 7, has become true. They have been stained by the world. And the stain is most apparent when they worship. I told you James was going to be was going to be difficult. I warned you he would get under our fingernails, and he has. Isn't this our sin? We see people, but we don't see them through the lens of Christ's love. And that's how a person in need could appear among the family of God and no one care except to get him out of the way. Because they're not looking at the world through the lens of Jesus' eyes. They're looking at the world through the lens of some selfish agenda. And we need to be saved from that. We need to be delivered from that. What's the solution to help us get our eyes off people and on Christ? Well, James is going to address that in, in the verses that follow through verse 13, and we're going to track with him 
We're going to do that in the next few weeks. We're just going to listen to what he says. And notice the word listen in verse 5. Listen. And James will begin to talk about the gospel at that point. Listen. I would say at this moment, let's think, let's remember. What did the Lord of glory do for us? This will help. What did the Lord of glory do for you? Well, he entered human history. He did not stay in heaven. In heaven, it's pure, it's, it's holy, it's bright. There's the radiance of the triune God, and he left all that behind. He, he left his heavenly safe place, his riches, which were his and rightfully his, and he came here to the place of our sin. He came to us in our rebellion, and he did not come as a rich man or a celebrity demanding special treatment. He he, he took the form of a bondservant. He would accept no special treatment, and he didn't get it. He was despised and rejected and forsaken of men. He came into his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to atone for our sins, freely motivated only by love. And Paul nails it. What Paul says is so apropos. He says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And now you, through his poverty, are rich. He left all the power and the wealth and the glory behind, and he came to you. Listen to that. Listen to the gospel we say we believe. And see yourself through the lens of the cross. Look at our Lord who is glorious, whose glory was veiled, in his incarnation. See other people as sinners in need of grace. Don't divide them up into categories of rich and poor and black and white and Asian and this or that, educated, uneducated. See them in the biblical categories. Either they know Christ or they don't, but they they need Christ. And all of these people that we divide up into various categories can only be saved one way, in Christ. All of our categories, my dear brothers and sisters, all of our categories are irrelevant to Jesus. Do you see that? And you know what he's doing? He is building his church made up of redeemed sinners who place no value at all on those worldly categories because here, those categories don't matter. We're not a white church. We're not a multi-ethnic church. We're not a Republican church. We're not a conservative church in that sense. We're not well-to-do in that sense. We're a church of redeemed sinners. 
from all tribes and all tongues and classes and nations brought together as one in Christ. One. There is only one true church. The church of the Lord of glory. And in his one true church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, rich nor poor, powerful or weak, black or white, educated or not, all, Paul says in Galatians 3, all are one in Christ Jesus. Let us never lose sight of our Lord of glory. And we'll have no problem when a rich man or a poor man come in. They will receive the same grace that saves the whole world. Would you pray with me?